Um, okay, welcome back. We've now got um, uh, Nicky. I keep um, spell-correcting spell his name. It's Mernin, not Mullin, but that's completely my fault. Um, but uh, Nicky's uh, come to us today. Uh, Emma, actually, from, from Access, who's Chief Executive of Access, um, discovered Nicky through Twitter, seeing some of the comments he was making, specifically around kind of loneliness and the concept of being sort of loneliness and isolated and, and being unhappy. And so asked me to get in touch, and we did, and then he agreed to come up here. So we're really blessed he's come a fair distance to come to us, much like we had Josh and Dan and now Catherine doing as well. So we're doing really well with people coming quite a distance to come and talk to us. So uh, hopefully, um, I think it's going to be really interesting. So give Nicky a really warm, lower stuff welcome. Even warmer. We'll be good. Yeah, either side is fine. Yeah, so we've been talking over the last couple of weeks, um, Nikki, really about just sort of coming up here. And just, I think we both kind of encountered recently the idea of some of the ACES work, which has been going on around childhood experiences. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think if you hold it, you should be okay. Yeah. Um, and we'd both had similar, although very different upbringings, but where we'd experienced some of this stuff. Sure. And so, yeah, where were you? Just talk to people a little bit about perhaps where you're coming from. And Well, um, I... I, I, I talk about on uh, Twitter how uh, we were primed from early on in our life to, to experience loneliness and isolation. And that can be a lot to do with our upbringing. I mean, people can reach uh, a point in their life where they're isolated or lonely uh, because of illness, bereavement. Um, so there's, there's uh, or depression. You know, depression can be the cause and effect uh, of loneliness. Uh, but where I was brought up, and it was something that Todd said, and why I talk about superpowers, is because what Todd said was touching on that, that um, you could feel the emotions of other people, but you could also alter the emotion and physical states of other people as well. Now, how I was primed for that and how I got these superpowers, we all have, we all have these superpowers that we can, we can experience uh, the feelings of other people. We can change them as well. I was brought up in Glasgow um, from in a relative of a, quite a violent uh, family um, from early on. Uh, my first experiences, you know, my mum was depressive, suicidal, uh, frequently violent. So I was prepared at that early stage in my life uh, to experience fear and how to deal with it and how to recognise the signs, facial expression, body movements, all that kind of stuff. And when my first experience of school, when I went there, I was looking for it, I was primed to look for potential threats, potential threats to my safety. So I seen it, first day I was there, seen fights in the playground. That already set off part of my autonomic response you know, my sympathetic nervous response to prime my muscles made me ready to, to run or fight. And that's the one of the superpowers that I developed. So when I was growing up, I went into my community, and that was also violent. But in the meantime, I was using these powers to protect myself as spot in people's faces. If they meant threat or looking, listening to the tones of the voices. When I was in class, didn't matter where I was, if I was in class and I felt under threat, I was fighting. That was going to happen, or I was running if I was outside the class. And when I got told off, off a teacher, what happened was I wasn't listening to the class because I was too busy listening to the tones and the threats to, to my safety. So when I was in the class, I couldn't learn. I wanted to learn. I was just too busy honing my superpowers, watching people's faces. Then, as I left school, you know, that, that power was still there. I wanted to learn these things, but in my community, I just couldn't do it. So when I left school, I was exactly the same in my working life. And you just realize, actually, what's happened is I don't have real superpowers. What happens is I've grown up in a toxic environment. It's not the movies when people, when children, find themselves in a toxic environment, they don't develop superpowers. They actually develop what we spoke about. Aces, I had seven of them all in. And that is what made me more defensive in my life. 
It's been because we were talking earlier about, and, and we've been going around doing some training recently with Department of Work and Pensions, talking about mm. work coaches who are now working with people who perhaps in the past they, they weren't having to, to work with. Lots of you will, will know that. And we talk a lot about the idea that actually if you're somebody who's had that kind of environment where you're very mm. primed for a response to a risk or a threat, your brainstem is mm. incredibly basic. Your brainstem, every animal on the planet has it. So your brainstem doesn't know the difference between a work coach who's intimidating to you or a teacher mm. who's telling you off and a tiger jumping through the window because you're getting ready to fight or run. So if you were to talk to somebody like yourself, if a teacher's just told you off mm. and you're getting ready to fight a tiger yeah. and they said, why did you just do that thing that you did? You'd be saying, well, I'm a bit busy with a tiger mm. fighting. If I'm going to ask you what were the last four jobs that you had and you're busy fighting a tiger, what's your priority going to be? Fighting mm. a tiger. Yeah. And as you saw, you know, the physiological effects of that, I don't know, mm. you've kind of looked into that in terms of just like how that affects you. Well, yeah, I mean, th this, is the, this is the point of loneliness that I, that I speak about on Twitter, but that made me actually take to Twitter. That because I was primed, that this superpower that I had was not only was it affecting my social relationships, the feelings of loneliness, but actually what was happening is that my body was being affected by it. I could feel the stomach pains, my t chest tightening up. And this is the thing about loneliness, that, that young people, all the studies are on demographics of older people, but young people feel loneliness as well, and this is through their early childhood experiences. But they're too scared to admit that they're lonely because it's, it's they get that mental health label. So too scared to say, actually, I'm lonely. This is what's happened. And we intuitively know that this is not a mental health problem. This is a physiological problem. This is a physiological issue that we're going through. And it has been known to cause type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular problems, cognitive decline. It's been associated with Alzheimer's disease, cancer, because it changes how your genes are transcribed in your body. But young people are still afraid to admit that, hey, I'm lonely, and this is why I'm having trouble with my social relationships. But if we framed it in this way, and we understood that in actual fact there's a physiological problem, it's not a mental health issue, then we can deal with it far better to understand the processes or the evolutionary process of where it comes from, what makes us lonely, what makes us scared, for example. Back in the day, when we were hunting in an African savannah, we're out, one minute we're hunting for food, and then we can become food, because our tribe is nowhere to be seen. So what happens is we become hypervigilant. We look everywhere for potential threat. Our muscles are primed, the heart speeds up, our blood pressure rises. And when you're in that state all the time, when you're in that state growing up, that has a huge effect on the functioning of your body, your heart, your blood pressure, your gastrointestinal system. People who suffer trauma often report having gastrointestinal problems, irritable bowel syndrome. So it's a thing that, that we have and to understand it from that perspective, why we get like that. It's a neurological response, physical response to perceived isolation. This is what's happening to our bodies. I think what I've found interesting as well by you know, the, the things that you've been talking about is that we've for a little while here thought about, I guess we're challenging the medical model a little bit with some mm. of our work around um, mental health because we're, we're thinking we don't want to make something a medical issue, for example. We don't want to make loneliness strictly a medical no. mental health issue because then it needs a professional to cure mm. it. We think that we might have a community system that can mm. help with it. That's where social prescribing perhaps comes in, the idea that we kind of move people towards community activities rather than thinking that we need a kind of system or structure to, yeah. to deal with it. But I think, I mean, sort of seeing what you, you've been talking about, I mean, you, you gave examples just of little things of actually asking people mm. how they are yeah, and them yeah. knowing that you mean it and that difference that makes, you know, to somebody. Well, it's one thing you said about being authentic and how, how it fixes these problems, recognising what's going on in the body. You're normal. Everybody is normal. Feeling lonely is not a problem. Feeling lonely is just a neurological signal. We would never tell anybody that we're, we're suffering from mental health issues because we're hungry. We'd feed ourselves, because that's what we do. If you're hungry, you feed yourself, it's, it's, it's a signal to do that. If you're thirsty, it's a signal to, to actually to drink. And similarly, being lonely is a signal to take care of your social connections, because somewhere along the line, they've been afraid. 
You've lost contact with other people and it's physically hurting you. It's changing how your heart works. It's changing your blood pressure. It's changing your internal organs. It's actually shrinking your brain. Your brain shrinks in response to isolation and being disconnected from people. It's a scientific fact. People know this. But that signal is different to, you know, the hunger signal, feed yourself, thirst, drink. If you're in pain, rest. That signal is actually about not feeding yourself, but feeding other people. Yeah? Reach out and help other people. Because the only way you can get out of yourself, because one of the consequences of, and that's what I was talking to you earlier about, about, about loneliness. One of the consequences of uh, loneliness is that it's a signal. We all intuitively know that. The language that we use tells us that we know intuitively to reach out and make new connections. But there's a flip side to that. Because what it also does is it makes us aggressive. It makes us hypervigilant. It makes us hyperreactive because we're in this state of our own autonomic nervous system that, that primes our body for fight or flight. So it's obviously say that it's got this push-pull effect. That's why it's so confusing for people who are lonely. But it's recognizing that. And to do that, to reach out to other people and make their connections, like you said before, you have to be authentic. You have to understand yourself and respect your body, respect how your autonomic nervous system is functioning, respect your own body and your own vulnerabilities. Say, I'm just, just a human being. Of course I feel like this, it's normal. But expect, accept other people's vulnerabilities and reach out and make new connections. And I think, yeah, there's that idea of it being a genuine connection as well. Because yeah, I think yeah, yeah. The, the issue, you know, as you say, isolation actually becomes loneliness, although it's painful, becomes... Mm attractive because actually then once you've got into loneliness then actually it's more scary to get out of it well, it's, a mecha- it's, a, it's a mechanisms and this all comes from that branch of your autonomic autonomic just is an automatic response to fear it's what your brain determines as fear we don't have a choice in this it just happens when we detect fear that just happens with beneath our consciousness if we see a face that looks threatening to us, immediately that system kicks in. And once we're in that place of loneliness and fear, it's very difficult to get back out again because of that push-pull feeling. We're going towards others to make social connections, but what's pushing us back is the fear, the fear of isolation, the fear of further isolation, which is bad for human beings, bad for all mammals to be isolated. But we have these feelings all the time that, that keep us at a distance from people, anger, hypervigilance, hyperreactivity. And this is what happens, is that we, we, we end up in these situations where it's difficult to escape out of. And so you've, you've, grow, you know, you've grown up, you've got these, um, similar to me in some, some respects, you've kind of developed these hypervigilances, these anxieties, and whatever linked to you know, childhood experiences, whether you call them traumas or adversities, mm. whatever. What do you do to draw yourself away from isolation and loneliness? What stops you being afraid of making human connection? Or what, stops you, what makes you overcome that fear? Well, I started understanding this because, again, it's, about, it's not about understanding other people. It's about understanding yourself and knowing what, you, what your motivational forces is. What's keeping you away from people? I, I do a job about delivering all day. I'm on my own. Plenty of time to think. My granny used to say that I idle mind is a devil's workshop. You're always thinking... And you're always catastrophizing about this thing, that thing, or the other, or thinking about your past or your social relationships. And I think that's one of the things in understanding that yourself, where you're coming from, understand you and what you, what you really, really need about your life, and that's to make stronger connections with people. You might not have that with your family, because most of us are messed up families. You know, it's just the nature of families, but we can go there and make newer families, newer connections. And again, we've got to get back to that thing about authenticity mm. and understanding actually how to be happy. But most of us don't even know the definition of happy. You know, if you ask anybody, everybody, you know, everybody here, does everybody want to be happy? I want to be happy. We all want to be happy, but most of us don't even know where to 
start and what happiness is. But it's not pleasure seeking the collection of stuff, you know, satisfying that part of your brain, you know, the, the reward center in your brain. It's not about that. Collecting things is ultimately make you happy. The more stuff you collect, the less you own because it starts owning you. But to be really happy, that what I'm talking about is the neurological, the physiological, deep down visceral happiness that's longer lasting. And any of us, to understand that, we have to understand why we respond in the way it is, the way we are, and understanding it from the position of our autonomic nervous system. And our autonomic nervous system knows two things. It knows danger or not danger, which is safety. Yeah? When we spot danger, it's the thing that's below the consciousness. None of us have a choice in this. It happens. But that's the two things that knows danger or safety. When we're in a state of danger, perceived danger, our, our autonomic system goes to the sympathetic mode, primes our muscles, we're ready for fighting or we're ready for running. That's what we're doing. It's affecting our whole body. If we're in that system all the time, we're deeply unhappy because we're unhealthy. Our social relationships are being affected and frayed. It's deeply corrosive. And it spreads everywhere like a social virus. But on the other hand, when our autonomic nervous system detects safety, what happens is a parasympathetic nervous system kicks in, switches off all the aggression, everything like that, and actually helps restore our gut health, slows the heart rate down, slows the blood pressure down. There's, certain, there's things like that, 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 that this is what I'm talking about, this. If we understand happiness from the perspective of our bodies and what our bodies are telling us, happiness is an actual fact, the absence of fear. And I was saying, speaking to Emma earlier on about that. If you're going to apply this to our communities, it's not enough to take threat and to eradicate fear for our communities. It's not enough to do that. We can take away the guns, we can take away the gangs, the knives, the drugs, the violence. Take all that out of communities. Are we safe? Are we happy? No, we're not. Because we have to then take individual responsibility to actually make another person safe with us. And the only way to do that is be authentic with them, closed in the gap, allow proximity. <clears throat> that allows contact, which therefore leads to greater social bonds. So when we're doing that in our community, so we have to understand the nature, what, what we expect happiness is. And happiness, you can only see for the perspective of what your body's telling you. That's true happiness. It's, it's interesting as well because thinking earlier we were talking about like the, the, the kind of medical, the model uh, of kind of putting a service in place for things. And there's a place for services, of course, there are a huge role in recovery. But I was uh, until recently sort of working in, in mental health services and I looked at the assessments that we asked about people that were going to move in to, to live in accommodation and recognised that actually the one to two questions that weren't on there were literally asking people, what makes you feel happy? So we want people to come and live in, in a service. They're going to live there for a couple of years, try and yeah. progress their personal recovery. The question actually doesn't exist in that. It's what makes you happy? What makes you yeah, feel yeah. safe? And I think you're right. There's a lot of focus on let's remove the threats. Let's remove mm. things that... Well, the police and our service do this and think it's got to stop there. And it's not. It's about opening up a dialogue with your community. And my thing is about building communities. I come from, you know, a little bit like Ivan. We come from, and a little bit like all of you, uh, you know, we come from... You know, if they're not a violent community, they're an apathetic community, they're switched off. And we've got to find a way to actually open up that dialogue. We've got ready. And my, my community isn't violent. The community I live in isn't particularly violent. The communities I've lived in have been violent, but the community I'm in is apathetic. It's switched off, it's cynical. You know, it's become narcissistic, cynical, hypervigilant, you know, and again, it's, it's an expression of how we all feel and how this is being transmitted all over our communities. The whole community is feeling like that. It means they're switched off. It means that we, when we are feeling lonely, we are switched off. And we have to start thinking about how we're going to open up a dialogue with each other and make it a safe space. I've got to be able to tell you that this is a safe space between us. 
you know, and when I'm talking to people, and we're talking about our communities, I've got to learn. And things like, these are things we can do to do that. Before we even started, when we were evolving, before we developed language, our, our, our face, our facial expressions actually evolved as a form of communication with each other. We use our face all the time to communicate. We smile. And a smile slows down your heart rate. It slows down the person that you're talking to, their heart rate. It slows down the blood pressure. And these are the easy things that we can do. We can change your breathing. I mean, even something as simple as putting you in a relaxed state puts others in a relaxed state. And what happens is when you breathe, when you breathe in, it increases your heart rate slightly. And when you breathe out, it reduces your heart rate ever so slightly. But it's enough to put you into that parasympathetic nerve, uh, put you into that parasympathetic position where you're actually socially engaging with people and it makes them feel comfortable as well. So little things like that that we have to take individual responsibility and you cannot forget that that you said it's about authenticity, but genuinely connecting. Forget about your work agenda or your service provision. This is actually about making genuine connections. Find out about the other person and find out where you can connect with them and reduce that gap, that, that social synapse, if you like, that, that's between us. And what does that look like for you? So you're, because you're out, you're meeting people, I guess, you're in your van, you're also meeting people and whatever. Mm. What does that look like for you in terms of making a, a safe space in a short period of time or making people feel like you're, you're well, interested in them generally? Is that, I mean, it's that that we can't forget. When I meet people, I mean, I've got, I've got a natural proclivity as we all have. All human beings have got this natural um, bias to danger. Very good evolutionary reasons. So it would be ancestors if they mistook a snake for a stick. Well, they didn't live long enough to be our ancestors. They died. So we've got a natural, that's our, that's our legacy that we have. We've got this natural inclination, this natural bias towards danger. I've got more of that. I was talking to Ivan. You've got that as well, haven't you? We've got a bias towards danger because of the communities that we've been brought in, that we've been brought up in. And so my, my bias to danger is well switched up there. So it's not about calming other people down. It's about calming me down. That's what it's about. Because other people see that of me. If I'm, if I, if I'm nervous, I mean, my first impression, I'll be honest, when I walked in here, my own autonomic nervous system was saying, get the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be here, I want to be doing this. Because I've never done this kind of thing before. That's what it was telling me, because I've got that bias to danger. I read everybody's faces, I, you know, it's confusing. But it's about calming me down. So I did the, the thing about breathing, unbelievably, I smile to myself, because I know there's a neuroanatomical link with your face and your heart, you smile, it slows your heart down, it reduces your blood pressure and calms you down. It's not about making other people, people feel calm, it's about calming you down, making you feel calm. And we're talking about, I mean, we talk about big things in terms of like big communities. So we, mm. I'm sure we, re I'm sure people who live in, in Lower Stoft and other parts of Waveney will recognise what you're talking about in terms of communities feeling like perhaps they're either apathetic or they're mm. perhaps risky, one of the two, or a bit of both in, in some cases. What's your instinct about the, you know, because we if we're going to do this stuff, we're going to make change and we want to make huge change here. That's our commitment is to make Lower Stoft Waveney the best place in the world for mental health. That's what we want to do mm. eventually. What's your instinct about how we communicate to people that we can become more safe, we can interact more, that we can reduce loneliness, or we can be brave enough to speak to each other? Well, I always imagined uh, people just understanding this, and this is why I think it's important. I mean, I only went on Twitter and social media. I was, you know, everybody thinks I'm a complete social leper because I'm just not part of the Twitter arty or I don't go on Facebook. It's completely new to me. So. I only went on to talk about this thing and share some of this information. Hopefully, it'll help you understand, like it helped me understand where loneliness comes from, the evolutionary uh, perspective, and how it has a physical effect on our bodies. And it can be very corrosive to our relationships and dangerous to our entire body. You know, so I think we're passing that idea on as we're asked that. 
He's just telling people, whoever listened to him actually bore people to death talking about this stuff and going about it incessantly because I really believe it helped me and I, I think it will help some of you guys, you know, just to, to understand it from that perspective because I'm not talking about them and us, service providers. I'm talking about all of us as human beings. Everybody is affected by this. Everybody has got an autonomic nervous system and everybody has got a bias towards seeing danger. So that's when I start, start by just telling people and sharing information. That makes me have a, a stronger connection with people as well. Just sharing information with them. Yeah. You know, when service providers come into our communities, they form committees to get something done in the community. It's actually, I think, it's about putting business last and it should be putting socialising first. It should be actually to make, if you're forming a committee, go around for a brew. You know, that's all you have to do. Just form stronger connections with people. You can't get business done unless you form stronger social bonds. None of us can do that. I always think it this way that, you know, New Labour won a landslide victory in 1997, primarily because they were thought to have dumped Clause 4, which is a socialisation and a means of production. I think we should be taking that as a mantra, not just for ourselves, but for our communities, and saying socialisation is the means of production. This is how we get things done in our communities, this is how we get things done between us. This is how businesses work. If I if if did this in our communities, I thought about it this way, in our communities, in our workplaces, and in our schools, you know, to, to socialise. You look into any classroom today and they've all got their, you know, their, their faces and their iPads. They're not actually communicating with each other. They're not using what we've evolved as a communication system, a face, their expressions, the tonality of their voices. They're not using any of that. But that should be it. That should be the first place we start in a community is to socialise and think of systems where we can actually put business last and put socialising first. That should be the mantra of our communities and our workplaces and our schools. Socialisation is the means of production. It's, it's interesting to say that. We were down um, yesterday, feedback, we were in um, Westminster Parliament in Suffolk Day and we were asked to go down there and show a little bit about what we do. And we were talking um, with some people down there about kind of like the high street and the idea mm. that the high street in a lot of towns, Lowestoft's no different. And I would say the high street here, obviously, I think of London Road uh, North particularly, but are kind of declining. So this, the, the idea that these retailers, you know, use these areas as retail outlets and, yeah. and, and places of commerce is kind of declining and probably isn't going to change. But we were discussing, and it'd be interesting if other people have a thought on this, that but you have got a natural place where people over decades have been used to congregating, coming together, mm. making use of space, feeling safe perhaps, yeah, yeah. exchanging and trading things. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be goods. It could be emotions. It could be conversations. And I, just, mm -hmm. I wonder if there's a role for these big spaces that are being vacated by business to be replaced by communities by love by you know interaction social, know. yeah definitely to, to provide uh, better social places uh, social meeting places where i live i mean it says you know the, the high street for a moment you know where i live in my community we have no social meeting spaces we've got like a makeshift community center it's a library a very small library but the entire community is supposed to meet there how the hell are they going to do that <laughs> nobody can fit in the place but yet all these social, all these meeting places are being taken away from us. Like we are supposed to accept as a community isolation and put up with it. Telling us there's a mental health problem. No, there's something wrong with you. If you feel, if you feel lonely, yeah, you've got problems. I don't have a problem. Whatever problem there is enforced isolation. Whatever problem it is being cut off from my community. That's what I have a problem with. And we start accepting that and our communities and our social spaces being taken off as through our local authorities and them being caught up in the same bullshit. It's all about money, it's about this, that, and next thing. It is, it's just nonsense. They're telling us that we'll go to live isolated lives. Have a few pills, that'll make you feel better. 
No, what it does is it stops you feeling. That's what happens. And they take these spaces away from us. So yeah, it'd be a great idea to try and take these, these spaces in the high street, maybe. Interesting though, social prescribing feels like uh, an emerging kind of thing. And I know we've been doing it in lower stuff for a little while. And I was at a conference last week and the GP, actually really brave GP, was talking um, about his getting to grips with social prescribing. And for those of you who don't know, it's just the idea that you kind of, rather than medication, we think of helping people to socialise and get out and get involved in community activities or go to groups to reduce things like isolation or sure. we, we work on financial <coughs> problems, you know, rather than just sending people away with some tablets. But he was saying that the big thing for him to get his head around was the idea that for years you would take an issue. So you've got someone in front of you who has an issue that they see as obesity. So they've got a person who's overweight. And for years, he said, we've been sort of suggesting, well, get off the bus and stop early. Mm. Or go get off a lift one floor below. And he said, and then it just, so he said, it just struck me because I was thinking of a social prescribing model that this guy, and he had this example of a guy that he worked with in Liverpool. And he said, he was, you know, parroting his, you know, get off bus stop one step early. And then he said, I stopped and spoke to him and recognised that actually what I was doing by encouraging him to do that, if he'd have done that, is 500 yards early for him. Mm -hmm. is a really scary part of town, a mm -hmm. place that he's got some really bad memories yeah. where bad things have happened. And he was going to have to walk through that to get the extra bus stop early to get home. And actually the trauma, the stress of doing mm -hmm. that, would be worse for him than the 500-yard walk. He said, actually, I was prescribing him misery. Mm. And then telling him he's already overweight and he lives on the 18th <laughs> floor anyway. Get off, a, get, off, get off the lift. And he yeah. said, I realised, actually, I'm, I wasn't prescribing him a cure. I was prescribing him more misery. Yeah, because, early yeah. death. <laughs> and, and actually what they were saying as well was the first, the most, the mass, the biggest step for somebody who is lonely and not going out and isolated, something like 25% of people have less than 27 minutes of activity a week in this country. Mm. And so what they're saying is going from zero to something exponentially is bigger than any other step you'll make. Mm. And so with this guy, what they ended up doing was basically they did a walking group which ended at Anfield. This guy was a huge Liverpool fan and at the end of it, he got into Anfield, he got to walk around it. So every week, he wasn't prescribing him a walk, he was prescribing him, was prescribing him joy. Going to see Anfield, going to see Liverpool Town, mm. Liverpool, Liverpool Town, Lowestoft Town. I think you get much joy out of Lowestoft Town at the moment, but <laughs> go, go and see uh, yeah, Liverpool Football Club. And it was just a joyful moment for him, getting mm. there. And uh, yeah, I just think it's interesting as well. I mean, I like the idea of social prescribing because there was, um, and from was it the, the, the one that's always bandied about in uh, Somerset, uh, Dr. Helen Kingston, I think she was called. Um, it works. I mean, this stuff actually works. Social prescribing, because what this, this she did was reduced hospital admissions by 17%. That's not drugs. That's not fancy food or Jamie Oliver diets. This is actually just by saying, well, you know, go back into your community. You know, talk to your community or, you know, prescribing the community and reducing hospital admissions by 17%, whilst the rest of Somerset went up by up 30%. That's massive, that's a massive decrease in hospital admissions. And if you looked at it this way, we could be saving the NHS billions. You know, because obviously, the only thing the government is going to listen to is, is money. You know, that's it. We're never going to get anything happen in the community unless we can actually say, this is the savings you're going to make by investing into your communities. Because taking these things away from you is, is like a social death sentence for a lot of people in our community. But I think there's an interesting challenge as well, because I think the challenge is that we're putting out is perhaps the system, systemic mm -hmm. stuff in terms of pushing people. Because this is the other interesting thing last week about social prescribers. There's a huge understanding, I think, now that, that there's a push downwards into social prescribing. So GPs will push people down towards, I don't mean down in a, in a negative sense, but towards yeah. social prescribing. But actually, I think there's a responsibility for us as people in the community to push people up into it as well. Mm. Because most people who are lonely and isolated actually probably aren't going to the GP. They're your neighbour. They're three doors down. They're five doors down. So how do we you know, think about our responsibility to our neighbours and our community? And maybe we have to create some kind of um, system for that mm. or support for that. But I think we can't also escape the fact that you know, we're in our communities and we're living near people who are isolated people who have got this well, sentence yeah, to misery, you know. Yeah, because the way to do that is, I mean, another way approach to that is, is to invoke that principle of self-interest. What's in it for me? 
what is in it for me to help another person go see my neighbor, check out that they're all right? Well, if you understand that principle, that actually your lack of social connection is making you sick, it's making me sick, it's making a community sick because we're not connecting with each other. If we understand that principle, what's in it for you is your health. So just start for that position. It's good for you to help other people. Physically, it is good for you. It's good for you to get out there and connect with other people because it changes, literally, switches on your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your social engagement system. It promotes health, creativity, productivity, just by helping people. Yeah. So, so self-interest, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Okay, I've asked loads of questions, and uh, I've been talking a lot already, so that's probably not, not very good for you guys. But uh, anybody else got any, any questions for Nikki? He's come a long way, so ask away. If you've got a question or interest in an interest from Nikki or myself or any other guys, Mike. Don't make it too hard. <laughs> Hiya. Um, my name is Mike. Um, Hi, Mike. I, I'm wondering, um, I, I, I mean, I'm sort of at ease um, with, with what you're saying. Okay. Um, but I'm wondering about what about people with on the autism spectrum? Autism spectrum, uh, well, I mean, the, the, it's not an area uh, that I particularly look at. I mean, I wouldn't even like to begin to comment on that, you know, because there's a, you know, it's just not my area, so I, I can't answer that question, sorry. I think something interesting is going to happen. I'm at the back, don't turn around. Um, you can hear me at the front. I think something interesting is going to happen around autism and Asperger's diagnosis in these links to trauma. Mm -hmm. There's a huge, a huge emerging field really over the last 20 years in, in mental health is trauma-informed approaches. I think the understanding of trauma is going to blow apart the diagnosis of autism and Asperger's in a lot of cases because I think a lot of people who present with autistic symptoms... Yeah, de will definitely improve our understanding of what trauma actually does into the body. And I think how we understand it, there's been a lot of studies in uh, ACEs and things like that. But I think still, we're still understanding ACEs from a psychological perspective rather than a physiological thing that's, that's actually happening to our bodies. And it's, it's, like I said, it's science. When we, when we experience trauma in our life, this sympathetic nervous system switches on and it affects our bodies, it has effects. When, that, that, when you're young, when we're young, we can cope with that, our bodies and hearts can cope with that. But when we're getting to 40, you know what it's like, anybody that's reached 40. You know, you go to the doctors, you're feeling healthy, you're walking out and you feel like crap because you've got a packet of pills as well. You know, because you realize that your body's in decline. But it's even more in decline when, we're, when we've experienced trauma and this, this sympathetic nervous system is constantly engaged. It's putting pressure on our heart all the way through our lives, and it's when we get beyond 40 that that's when the trouble starts. Sorry, Vicky. <laughs> I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> Hi. Um, Hello. The um, Children's Society done um, a study with um, children regarding happiness, and they found that... Um, a high percentage of children didn't feel that they were happy. Mm -hmm. And that um, one of the main things that came out was that they wanted their families around them, yeah. but felt that they weren't having that. And is there um, a need for preventative work with children um, regarding things like what is happiness? Um, understanding, as you said, about the links between loneliness and isolation and physical mm. sense as well does it can you start at the early point of life being able to as a society being able to put those links in for people children that maybe not have them at home well yeah that's a, that's a good question because that's what i talk about about actually it's got to start off early in life educating the children you know, on, on actually, this is the nature of happiness and teach them how to, how to breathe properly, how to be in the moment. I mean, I, I don't read a lot about it, but people call it mindfulness. 
you know, to be in the moment, because a lot is forget. There's a part of your brain that we have, it's called the uh, default mode network. And when you're not performing a cognitive task, this part switches on like a Christmas tree. You're constantly thinking, it's self-referential. You're thinking about your past, you're thinking about your, oh, you're thinking about your past, you're thinking about your future, and it's all about your place in that, and your social relationships often makes you catastrophize. So we're never actually in the moment. The here and now and experiencing what we should actually be experiencing because this default mode network is always switched on because we're always sat around daydreaming and, and this is what daydreaming is, thinking about getting ourselves worked up, switching that system on, causing our heart to beat faster because we're catastrophizing about our, our future. Worrying about a future that's actually never happened. The only place it's happened is in your mind, reflected in your heart, and the rest of your internal organs. So yeah, we should be teaching our kids this in school. That's a great place to start, to tell them that this is a way to relax, the nature of happiness. And how to relax and happiness is only an expression. And I say only, like it's nothing, because it's only happiness. An expression of your autonomic nervous system being at a point where it restores your health. That's happiness, it's true happiness, the long-lasting restorative happiness that any of us can have. None of us are happy that have completely got our, our system switched on all the time to that sympathetic mode. I've been used to it most of my life. I even I was talking to you about that. We've all been used to this, this, this system being switched on. Some of us don't even know it's on, but you're just living on raw energy. Nervous, we're up and down, we're all the place. We can't even sit down for a moment to breath because it makes us feel nervous. You sweat. Great question in front of Thank you. Hello there. Uh, it's really interesting to uh, listen uh, and hear what you've got to say. Thank you. Um, it struck me when you were talking about um, the authenticity mm -hmm. of communication and creating that genuine community, mm -hmm. um, one of the big barriers that we've got nowadays, um, throughout all ages, uh, whether it's school children, whether it's in the workplace, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's in the more elderly members of the community, is um, social media. Mm -hmm. So hiding behind, um, uh, um, whether it's Facebook, in, for example, yeah. whether it's the desktop in the workplace mm -hmm. and sending an email to someone three meters away from you. Um, <laughs> I heard yesterday that uh, amongst the elder members of uh, the community in general, 10% um, of them, their best friend and the only person they ever listen to or speak to is the television. Yeah. So do you have any thoughts on, you know, th th these things, are, uh, they're, they're here to stay um, and they have a, their part in mm. defining who we are and who our community is because actually they extend the reach of mm -hmm. our community in many respects but there is the negative side to them um, yeah. that is utterly invidious. Um, yeah. And you know, a lot of what you're saying makes perfect sense, but mm. this is a huge barrier to overcome. So, yeah. so how do you see? Well, I see, right it in a lot, yeah. I see it in a lot of ways, not too nice ways either. <laughs> you know, I was talking to Emma about this earlier on, and but, but this is what we've got. There's been, there's been platforms created by people who, for whatever reason, have had little to no social skills. And we've been drawn into that world. Yeah? Being told that this is the world that we should be in. And we're not making the connections. We're not making our connections the connections. Even the, the, language, the language that we use to reach out online tells us we intuitively know that we should be literally reaching out to the person next to us and making connections, but we ignore it. We go online and talk to people. And when I first went on Twitter, I thought, oh my God, I've got, I've got some insecurity issues. I've got problems with rejection. Because I was going on, and I've only been on there since like February, something like that. I started up the account. I was too scared to talk to anybody. So I was lurking. But when I went on there, 
oh my God, I've got some issues going on, and ah, why are they not answering me? I must be talking crap. Or, you know, nobody's really listening to what I'm saying. And I've got all this going on. And then I started thinking and thinking about it logically. Okay. I was saying that to him. If I come up to you, sorry, what's your name? George. George. I come up to you and say, George, my life is great. My kids are great. Have a look at this picture of my kids. Have a look at the holiday I've been on. Look at my new car. Look at my new shoes. Isn't it great? And then you look at me with a blank face and walk away. Yeah. I'm going to, that's going to constitute a biological insult to me because what's happened is with you stonewalling me like that you've made my heart race yeah you've set off again that sympathetic nervous system you've set that off so biologically I'm affected by that that's if you ignore the mistake I made in the first place which is to tell you, me tell you everything about me and me to ask nothing in return about you about your family this is what's happening with everybody online every day. We're going there and we're going, we're going Twitter, on Facebook. Facebook's the worst for it actually. We're going there and it's all for people with self-validation. We want to be validated, which is completely normal because in a community, to be part of a community, you've got to feel valued and validated inside that community. So it's normal for people to actually do that. But what, what's happening every time we post something on Twitter, on Facebook, and everybody ignores the beautiful kids, and everybody ignores a new pair of treads or a new car. We feel biologically insulted. Our heart races. And this is what we date ourselves every single day. We date this all the time. And there's nothing wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong because we are where we are. We've got capitalism. Hey, let's live with it. You know, we've got technology. Let's live with that. But it should make an enhancement and not a replacement for social connection. We need that social connection as a biological imperative. We need that to stay alive. And I hope, if anything that I've told you today will demonstrate that we need that to stay alive. They need it to function. And that's what we're talking about authenticity. We're talking to people and saying, and accepting our own vulnerabilities and saying to each other, Saying to yourself first, I need you. Without you, I don't exist. Without you, I can't grow. Without you, I can't be healthy. I can't be productive. And I can't be creative without you. That's what I have to do. Just authenticity. I think as well, there's a, there's a role as well for the evolution of these things. And I think it'll be interesting. A bit like we're saying, the reverse of a high street. Think about the impact of television in the sort of 50s and 60s. It, it, you know, it moved people into the front room with their food. It brought families together in a way where they weren't looking each other in the eye and talking to each other. You know, 30 million people not going out in an evening to watch a programme because you're going to watch it on one night. And you know, slowly it kind of evolved and videos came and went and blockbusters came and went and things like that. So it'll also be interesting how it evolves because I think there's a... There's an understanding of how we use it. Brené Brown does oh, some interesting stuff about how we should use yeah, social instead, media. Instead of going out and making friends, you're watching reruns of Friends. <laughs> yeah. That's what's happening. <laughs> question here. Get your hands high in the air as well if you've got a question. Hi, uh, I'm Nikki. Hi, Nikki. I'm Nikki. <laughs> uh, you were talking about fear, um, like being apart. Okay. Um, I'm. I was abused as a child, mm -hmm. and I'm quite nervous mm. around men. Yeah, sure. Um, and I get, if I'm near a guy, if I don't know them, I get, like, panicky, mm. my breathing goes, and I, like, I go in a mess, get sweaty okay. hands. Yeah, yeah. How would you say that I can get better at that and not get that fear as bad, if that makes sense? Well, look... I mean, I'm not an expert. I drive a van. <laughs> That's what I do. I drop parcels off. So I, I'm just kind of uh, sharing this information with you. I don't know, a little delivery if you like. You know, I'm just sharing what I know and hope that will help you. And as I'm saying, trauma can shape us. It can, it can hurt our health later on in life. It can affect who you are. You, you, you sweat because it's your body's way of protect, protecting you from injury should you get into a fight. Yeah? That's evolutionary. That's why we sweat. 
Yeah? And why did the function in your stomach stops? Because it, can, it, it sends all the energy and the, the metabolically demanding organs that you have, it, it almost closes all that down, stops them from working because you want to be ready for fight or flight. That's what happens. But the simplest way I understand to calm myself down is just a simple breathing. And it's, it's that out breath that matters because then breath actually speeds your heart up. But the out breath, the slow exhalation, abdominal breath, I'm not going to do one for you because it's a little bit undignified than breathing in at the moment. But <laughs> when, when you do abdominal breath, breathing in and then breathing out slowly, it actually reduces your heart rate. So it can start to make you feel better and, and you know, environments that, that, that you feel under threat. Sometimes that's no you that's feeling, there's your autonomic nervous system, the thing they call neuroception, it lies under perception. Yeah, something that, that when people have suffered trauma, for example, a lot of people don't know that actually affects how you hear things, yeah, because it affects the inner muscles, the inner muscles in your ear, tiniest little muscles, that affects them. So you tend to hear really low frequencies or really high frequencies, and then when you're in social environments, it's difficult to pinpoint human voices. And men's voices, like you said, you know, if you feel threatened through men, they're lower. So they can often feel more threatening. In fact, when you were talking earlier on about autism, it's one of the things that is, that is reported through autistic kids, that they feel more threatened or that the, the, their condition worsens in the presence of their dad because it's a lower voice. And it's because trauma interferes with how you actually hear things. Yeah? So, that's, so how to do that is just, like I say, maybe breathing exercise, but the out-breath is so important. And in terms of your evolution, if you understand that, that out-breath, what that means, that's a signal, evolutionary, that when you breathe it, it's safe. Yeah? There's no saber-toothed tigers trying to kill me. There's no people from the next village trying to kill me. I can relax. Yeah? That's it. Question over here. Hello, my name's Jill. I might be totally on the wrong track, but one thing I wanted to sort of get in my head is, is kind of what you're saying, is that what, I, like previously, people would have said, oh, it's some kind of mental health thing, you need mm -hmm. medication, that kind of thing. But what you're saying is you need to connect with people, yeah. and that makes you feel better. Because what I would say is that I'm supposedly bipolar or whatever, you know, sometimes sure. I go high and whatever. And in the past, you know, it's like, oh, take all these antipsychotics, oh, that will sort you out. And then when yeah, gradually, yeah. when you're sorted out, they say, oh, it's the antipsychotics that sorted you out. Crap. Mm. Because I've just been through an experience of being high, too high, whatever the word is you want to, too excitable, too into, every, you know, really a bit crazy, I yeah, suppose yeah. you'd say. But that was due to like, circumstance, falling in love with someone, basically, mm -hmm. and being really, really overexcited and overhappy and everything. I don't think it's anything to do with like need medication at all because gradually, in my circumstances, I came out of it. And then they would say, if they like, if the mental health people got involved, oh, it's because we've given you the antipsychotic, and that's what sorted you out. But gradually, you know, through life, you just like feel better anyway, don't you? And the connection thing, I really get because up until um, December, I've always done cleaning jobs and that. Yeah. But I'm in a situation at the moment where I don't have to look for a paid job. I'm okay at the moment. So I've started volunteering with the Red Cross and um, helping people to connect in their communities. Mm -hmm. And I am so much happier than when I was yeah, doing yeah. the cleaning jobs. Yeah. And like, I, so I'm not saying the people where I cleaned were horrible because I met some really lovely people. I have lovely memories of working at New Look and the girls there and oh, they were lovely. Mm -hmm. But doing what I'm doing now and meeting these lovely people and sort of trying to help them feel better about themselves, it's just... I can't tell you, it's just so lovely. It's just really lovely. And it's better than all their stupid medication. So I take this crap. Mm. Crap. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, Jill, I totally understand where you're coming from. But that's what I was saying about that, that, um, that signal. That when you feel lonely, it's a natural neurological signal rooted in a revolutionary past to make... Yeah. Mm. And I was so 
Thanks very much. We've yeah, got um, we've got yeah. a question. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. No, that's fine. We've got a question. <laughs> question at the front here. I lost it there. <laughs> Hi, thanks. Um, have you written this down on paper? Um, <laughs> I haven't because basically I'm rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I, tell you, I just don't know. I just uh, somebody asked me this the other day, and uh, you know, you have this idea. So I really want to tell, and I really want to share this information with people because I really think. Hopefully, it will help people. Because mm -hmm. I, I, I tell you what, as an ex-teacher, mm -hmm. um, ex-foster carer, ex-trauma ex, ex person myself, and I, and I have an autistic child, everything that you said today, including how you've kind of come up with the questions and he's replied to you, if I had heard you th when I was 13 at mm. school, I wouldn't spend the next 34 years um, hoping that I die. Mm. You have put into words things that I couldn't verbalise, mm. and I was able to visualise everything that you said. Now you would be able to help so many teenagers out there. Mm. And if I had heard you, I would have been able to step forward out of the cycle I got myself in. You'd have made me kind of click on to why I was feeling things, why mm. I was doing things. And I just, I think. Um, basically, you better get out there for no, those that's, teenagers. That's, that's, really, that's really kind of you. Thank you very that's much. And no. I hope, hopefully, I'm glad that it helps you. We've got any more? I've got one at the back here. But any more questions? Yeah, let's go at the front here. It's not really a question, but um, following up from our friend's uh, comment here, um, it, what uh, she's saying, uh, if I understand it correctly, is what you say is very accessible. And uh, it, obviously everybody understands and, and uh, it has a resonance with everybody here who's had any issues at all. Um, but there, there was a book um, written some years ago called Emotional Intelligence, which is on this subject, but a lot less accessible than you standing in front of us and, mm. and telling us this. Um, the book starts with a comment by the doctor who wrote it, who, who was on a bus and he saw this, uh, people getting on the bus every time it stopped. And the bus um, driver um, made them change from being sort of long-faced people going to work to being happy people. Mm -hmm. And they all got on the bus and they were happy and talking to each other. And he said, in 20 years of medical practice, no one taught me how to make people happy like this driver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Uh, there is something written about this, you know, that's the point. Someone has written something down like this, but it's not anything like as accessible as the way you've put it. And uh, so, uh, yes, write the book. Uh, thank you. <laughs> okay, we've got a question at the back here and then one at that corner, and then we've probably got time for, for another one. We'll do some more, we'll give chance some more questions for all of us at the very end if we want to. Is it here? Sorry, here. And questions. Um, I was going to ask exactly the same as the lovely lady at the front, so thank you for beating me to it. Saves <laughs> me the breath. No, I just want to say it's very accessible. I'm really sorry I missed the beginning, and uh, I think the lady's right. Um, the way you put it is it's not blinding us with science. Mm. There was no jargon, I think. And I also liked what um, is it Todd was saying about go with the social aspects of a project first, like regeneration, for example, of which it all connects in, as far as I'm concerned. And it's not that there isn't a place for committees, but it's more cart before the horse, yeah. I was thinking, in that sense. Well, I mean, if, if that makes a, sense to you. If there's a takeaway, I would like it to be that any of you guys that, that feel that this is helpful, to, to tell other people this is completely normal to feel loneliness. It's absolutely normal for us to feel like that. Don't be ashamed of it and tell other people, but that's the point, that's the key to being authentic with people as well, to actually say to them, I feel what you feel, I feel lonely, I'm normal, you're normal, we're all normal. We don't have to wrap ourselves up or be labeled as dependent or problematic or you know, you've got mental health issues, because it's not, it's normal. Yeah? What's not normal is isolation. It's not normal is giving drugs to actually to, to help us stop feeling. <laughs> okay, we've got one more at the back here. Um, 
When um, you're talking about like medication and stuff, it's mm -hmm. uh, like I'm actually feeling quite isolated okay. because um, I kind of like, and also talking about um, how our bodies react. Now you could say that my body doesn't react because I'm on medication, mm -hmm. but I've also been in, in a position where I haven't been on medication and I haven't had any of those reactions because what happened with me is that I go into freeze mode. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important that when we're talking about all of the different aspects of how our bodies yeah, react, yeah. it's also important to remember their freeze because mm -hmm. I, again, it's making sure that we see everybody. And um, I think that's quite a new, I think it's quite a new concept that yeah. there is that freeze oh, in yeah, there yeah. as well. And I think just so that I'm, I'm kind of like saying this for other people right now in the sense that if you're feeling like you might not have connected so much and you do freeze, then mm. that's okay because there's still people sitting in the room that also freeze. Yeah, well, see, the thing is that, that I mean, that's really important and it's such an important point. When you're talking about your autonomic nervous system, you've actually got three branches of that. You've got your parasympathetic, your sympathetic, and your freeze response. And we've often heard the people who suffer trauma, what happens is uh, nobody believes them. Nobody believes them because they've never fought back. Nobody believes them because, you know, your mate gets jumped and they're a bit ashamed, they're embarrassed to say, oh, I never fought back. Did it actually happen? And this happens to trauma victims all the time because that they've actually uh, recruited a really primitive part of their autonomic nervous system which has caused them to, to freeze, faint, defecate. This is what your, your, your body does. It's not your fault. Your body just does it. But it just happens to us. And I was telling that story to you earlier on, you know, that, that a lot of people don't understand this freeze response, how old it is. I was saying that to you, you know, if you stood on your own outside the chip shop, especially in Glasgow, and somebody comes to you and says, hey, you, yeah, you, give a pound or I'll stab you. You know, you're not gone, eh? Oh, you might, one of the responses might be to, to try and rationalise, think, well, that's a bargain. It's only a pound. We've got to change your 20. But that's one idea. But your autonomic nervous system has another couple of options that just is not up to you at all. It just happens. One of them is to actually run, one of them is to fight, but there's a third option, which is to freeze, that's it, just totally freeze, sometimes pass out, sometimes even can cause us what they call neurogenic bradycardia, it's when, you, when your heart literally stops pumping, that's you, that actually happens and that actually happens, so yeah, so it does, it's a thing. I think in the kind of day-to-day -day context, there's also flock, which is the, the attraction to, to move towards other people. But the, in a day-to-day -day scenario, I think it's really important when we're working with people or when we're speaking to people and they're not responding to us, is to remember that those flight, flight, flock or flock responses come from the same situation, which is that I'm not able to deal with the stress of the situation that I've got. So if I'm in front of the teacher, the work coach, <coughs> I've got a driving test, I've got a GCSE, and my brain stem says fighting a tiger. Mm. I'll either play dead, I'll run, I'll fight it, or I'll find some other people. So if, if that, what that will look like in front of a teacher will be a student who's agitated and angry, or a student who's not responding at all. Same reason. You know, the angry student isn't dealing with it any worse than the shutdown student. It's the same starting point. And so I think that's the thing, is you know, when, we, when we're thinking about these early intervention type stuff, and we talk about teaching children, teaching young people and adolescents, it's about understanding the people that might interact with them. And it doesn't have to be professionals, but understanding that response to start with. So actually, if I've got adrenaline and cortisone running around my body, it's going to take 10 or 15 minutes if I don't move for that to kind of go somewhere, probably 45 minutes. If I go for a walk and run around, it'll go. That's why these cycling teams spend a fortune secretly getting cortisone and adrenaline from one country to another. It works. It restarts the heart. adrenaline to restart the heart. That's how powerful it is. Yeah. And so if that's running around your body and unused, and all it's going to do is cause damage. And that's where the physiological stuff comes mm. in. But yeah, I think that's where if we can support the people working with each other, whether that's friends, family, teachers, whatever, to start recognising we need to see 
where this has come from, let that discharge and then come back to the reason. It doesn't mean you, where we, we accept behavior that isn't right in anybody. None of us should have to put up with aggressive or unpleasant behavior from people. But if, not, if someone's not able to talk about it because they're fighting a tiger, why did you just do that? Mm. I'm a bit busy with this tiger. Yeah. What's the point? You're just going to make it worse. So yeah, mm. I think it's a really, I think it's, it's a fascinating yeah, thing. Yeah. These things just thing. happen beyond your cognition, the freeze response. And when we're, when we're constantly, when we're, especially when we've experienced early childhood trauma, this is what happens, or we've been subjected to serious assault. You know, when our system feels that there's life threat, like I say, your autonomic system only knows two things, danger and safety. That's it, and it responds accordingly. And when you've experienced what your, your autonomic nervous system is telling you, oh, it's really dangerous here. Even though to us it might not be, but to you, that's totally dangerous and freaky. And this is why you're, you're recruiting this more primitive response system, which is shutting down your body. You feel like you can't move. That's what's happening. So it's completely normal and completely outside of your control. Well, I'd just like to, to quickly say, as with Josh and, and Dan back in February, as with Catherine this morning, I know that the impact of what you said today is going to be lasting because we're, we're trying to make it lasting. I know people from Lowestoft will carry on reaching out to you and I'm sure want to support you. But just for now, I just want to say a really huge thanks because that was a fantastic session, Nikki. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What we'll do is just take 10 minutes to grab a coffee and some water. And then what we're going to do is we're going to get those of you who run groups or organizations to get five minutes, a microphone, and tell other people about what you do. So we'll come back, like, literally 10 minutes, so 10 to 3.